Welcome back to the Diet Doctor podcast with Dr. Brett Sure, Today I'm joined by Dr. Brianna Stubbs, who's the chief translational scientist at the Buck Institute. And they're focusing uh, a lot on longevity and prolonging health span. And she transitioned to this from an athletic background and an athletic research background, studying ketogenic diet and exogenous ketones, how they affect athletic performance. And now she's transitioning both to athletic performance and health balance. So, so it's really interesting to sort of get her perspective on where ketones fit into the whole picture of performance for an elite athlete and for an everyday athlete, and then how that also may translate to health and longevity. Now, in the beginning part, probably the first half of this interview, we spend a lot of time talking about sports and athletics and athletic performance. So if that doesn't apply to you, if you're not interested, fast forward halfway through, and then you'll pick up on some of more of the, the health aspects. But it's great to get her perspective. She thinks from a scientific mind um, of evaluating the evidence before making big claims, and I think that's a, a good take-home message for all of us. Um, but I think you'll get some, some, some takeaways here about where ketones fit into this picture and whether they're right for you. So enjoy this interview with uh, Dr. Brianna Stubbs and make sure you go to dietdoctor.com. Um, you can see the, uh, the full episode um, and a transcript of it if you're a Diet Doctor member um, and also subscribe to our YouTube channel so you'll get all our regular updates. All right, thanks. Here's our interview with Dr. Brianna Stubbs. Dr. Brianna Stubbs, thank you so much for joining me on the Diet Doctor podcast. What a pleasure to be here today, and I hope you're enjoying the fantastic Metabolic Health Summit as much as I am. Oh, it's, it's wonderful. I mean, and, and you gave your talk earlier. Very relieved to have that out of the way. Nice to have it done. Now you can relax and enjoy the mm -hmm. rest of the conference. After this, I'm off to the bar. Yeah, very good. <laughs> very good. <laughs> now, I want to talk a little bit so viewers get to know sort of where you came from and how you started with this, because you started from a pure athletic background as a world champion rower and actually rowing across the English Channel at age 12. Right? Well, that's not the, the peak of athletic performance, but um, I guess it says a little bit about my personality that, that that was something that I asked my dad if he would help me do when I was 12. Yeah, so you certainly started at a young age and then worked your way up to being a world champion rower. And then how did you find your way into sort of the scientific world and the ketone world? Sure. I mean, um, I was always really interested in biology and how the human body worked, um, so much so that actually when I went to university uh, or school, if, if you're in America, uh, when I went off to university, I was studying medicine. So I was going to, my planned career choice was to be an MD, a medical doctor. And so I was studying um, all of the basic systems of the human biology in my undergraduate course. And um, also at university, I was starting to take rowing more and more seriously. And I'd been on the junior international team and the under 23 international team. So that was getting more and more serious as well. And it was almost like this very random, perfect storm of uh, random, random events, right? So I was rowing on the team and all of a sudden I see this um, advert for a study looking at keto nesters in rowers and they were offering to pay people to come and do rowing machine tests, which I was doing for free otherwise. And I was in my freshman year. I was like, this sounds like a great way to make a little bit of uh, beer money. I'll go and do that. And um the irony, what? beer money for uh, doing ketone research. Okay. I know, I mean, I, I didn't actually, I still don't really drink beer. I can't remember what I'd have spent that on, probably traveling to rowing races and things like that because a lot right. of it was self-funded at that stage. Okay. Um, and it wasn't, you know, we're not talking tons and tons of money here. It was po nice pocket money. Right. Um, but, um, yeah, so I, I took part in this, went and took part in the study 
And it was so relevant to my personal interest, but also was really building on what I was studying in the classroom, all of this biochemistry, which had kind of seemed a bit dry to me, quite frankly, as you're, as you're studying it and you've got this big metabolic pathway, the Krebs cycle, and you study all the different process pathways of fat uh, burning and carbohydrate burning. And we didn't really go into that much detail about ketosis. I, re- I do remember we were taught about it, but it wasn't something that had stuck in my mind. And so doing this study and meeting the research team really started to uh, trigger a lot of questions in me about how metabolism and sport uh, interacted and also how ketones and, and supplementing with ketones could fit into this. And so um, as part of my medical training, I was able to do a summer research project, which I did in that lab group. Um, and I got more and more involved with the research there. And, and so when it came time that um, my rowing was actually really taking off and I needed to step back a little bit from my studies to, to focus on that, that they actually offered me, the research lab offered me a position as an assistant helping to run a number of these studies. So it was good because it was flexible work and they were really understanding of the fact that my training was, was really demanding. And that assistant position kind of somehow converted into a PhD position that, you know, I was interested in doing good work. And so they brought me on. And really, um, the good thing as well was that the medical school were, were happy that I was doing a PhD and they could turn a blind eye to the fact that I was rowing all of the time. And they actually held a place open for me uh, in medical school that I could have gone back to at any point, which was really nice safety net. So I was just really free to go after the research um, and pursue my own athletic um, ambitions as well. And the two fitted alongside one another really nicely because actually uh, especially as I progressed into the senior team I moved into the lightweight category so I actually think I spent a lot of time in caloric restriction and in more of a ketogenic state so actually understanding starvation metabolism and ketone metabolism especially as it pertained to exercise it was not hard work at all for me to really get into the literature and and understand the implications of the physiological effects we're having on on my performance and therefore the implications for other athletes as well. Yeah. So first of all, I just have to comment that I think it says a lot about your um, abilities and your intellect that you can use an MD degree as sort of like a safety net. That's pretty impressive, first of all. But I, I really like what you said about, you know, learning the Krebs cycle, but having the practical, knowing the practical implications of what it can do, and then also you personally sort of experiencing it to see how the ketones work for you in your athletic training, I think it's that personal experience that makes us driven even more and that much more interested in studying it. And and subsequently, you've turned into a, a, an amazing researcher doing all the uh, all these studies and sort of being on the forefront of ketones and ketogenic diets for. Um, athletic performance. Now, as we get into this, I think we need to differentiate a couple of different things. I mean, there's a ketogenic diet, and then there's exogenous ketones. And then for athletic performance, there's elite athletic performance, there's sort of everyday athlete performance, and then there are the different sports uh, with different demands. So there's really a lot of specifics. You can't just say it's good for sports, it's good, it's not good for sports. You sort of have to get into the specifics. So Walk us through a little bit, you know, how do ketones in general help with sports and then kind of help us differentiate the specifics? Gosh, where do you want me to start with yeah. exogenous, endogenous ketosis? Let's start with endogenous because most people, um, the the low barrier of entry for a lot of people is probably, though know, they're already on a ketogenic diet and they mm-hmm. want to know how it's going to affect their athletic performance. And then we can go into exogenous from there. 
Okay. So the rationale behind um, going on a ketogenic diet for athletic performance is that when you become keto adapted, you get really, really good at burning fat for energy. And so uh, Dr. Volek over at Ohio State University, he's one of the world leaders in this field. And uh, he actually showed that if you get adapted to a ketogenic diet, the rate of fat oxidation can be two or maybe even three times higher than a regular athlete who's not fat adapted. So actually some of the values that he published in, in his study were showing that it was, I think it was 50% higher fat oxidation than had ever been published before. Like 1.5 grams per minute plays a normal sort of 0.6 to 0.8 grams per minute. So when you uh, become keto adapted, you're really, really good at burning fat. Now, if we take back and look at it, uh, take a step back and look at it from a, a theory based um, perspective, we have a lot more energy on board our body stored as fat compared with glycogen. So glycogen is the storage form of carbohydrate and we have it in our liver and we also have it in our muscles. And the energy in glycogen represents around about 2000 calories. So, you know, it's it's quite a lot more than most people would burn on an average 30 minute jog around the park. But, um, you know, for elite athletes with very high energy rates and especially as the event starts to get longer, that might start to become a limiting factor for their ability to kind of continue that exercise. Um, and so the theory behind the ketogenic diet, therefore, is that you be able to uh, upregulate your body's ability to burn this uh, fat stores where we have, uh, I think it's around about 150,000 calories worth of fat stored, you know, many, many more times energy stored as fat. And so if we can tap into that, then in theory, you should push out the, the time in which you would get exhausted. Now, I think this now comes brings us on to a point that you mentioned, which is the difference between elite athletes and... Um, more recreational athletes. So for elite athletes, actually there's very few events and I mean, the marathon is the longest event that's in the Olympics. And, and now we're seeing the marathon being completed in near on two hours. Right. So, I mean, it's um, not what I would class as a extreme endurance event. Obviously it's an endurance event, but it's maybe not something where the uh, glycogen availability plus the ability to take on exogenous carbohydrate is really the limiting factor. And what the limiting factor for performance for these athletes is the ability to produce energy as fast as possible. Now fat is um, is more, has a more complex metabolic breakdown pathway. Beta oxidation has many steps and you know there's glycolysis by comparison is quick and fast and you know in terms of oxygen efficiency also glucose is is an efficient fuel source for exercising muscles so at the moment the school of thought is that for elite athletes at quite a high in exercising at a very high intensity in order to complete their competition that actually they probably still want to be able to burn carbohydrates but actually then if we look at the the other pot of people here and that's the people who are training to run a marathon maybe they're running three hours if they're quite good but maybe more people completing marathons are more like five hours long and um so actually people then aren't so interested in that very, very high intensity performance. It's a completely different event. And so for those people, um, they actually might benefit from oxidizing more fat. And also for those people, things like body composition are going to also be more of an issue and being on a ketogenic diet might help them with that as well. So uh, when people ask me, is the ketogenic diet good for sport? You have to very clearly define the, the type of sport that you're interested in and also right. the level of the athlete you're talking about because... There have been some studies and, you know, it's not that well studied to date. Um, 
I would say that a lot of people who uh, hate on the ketogenic diet say that it, it doesn't work, but we actually haven't seen definitive performance decrements with the ketogenic diet. Right, and that's an important part. So can we say the ketogenic diet is... As good. Is, is better than or as good as carbohydrates. Yeah. So I think that where we are with the research right now is that it's definitely at least equivalent in, in many settings. For some individuals, because you know none of these studies report individuals who may have been like really, really good responders. And so you lose a lot of the, the detail, the fine resolution in these pictures, right? So there's no reason to, to doubt that some athletes are going to perform better on the ketogenic diet. Um, but you know if we look at all of the means, it's kind of null. Which is good, right? Because I actually think some people are like, you shouldn't do this. It's going to kill your performance. It's like, well, no, I think, you know, there's some studies where it helps a little bit, some studies where it takes a little bit off, but and some studies where there's no effect. Um, so when we look at the whole body of data, I wouldn't feel... I would I would say to an athlete, do what you actually feel makes you the best. Right. Um, and if you're going to get all these other health benefits from it anyway, why not give it a try if yeah. it's not going to hurt your athletic performance? And that's But that is more important for those recreational athletes who right. exercise as part of their lifestyle rather than exercising as, as their career. Right. Yeah, that's a good point. And then, so you talk about a marathon. So what about, you know, the, the guy who plays pickup basketball on a regular basis or... Um, the woman who likes to swim in the pool and do interval training in the pool. I mean, all of a sudden you're talking about a different type of exercise that are generally referred to as more glycolytic, meaning you need some of that quicker energy for interval sprints and things. Is then sort of maybe the ketogenic diet not the best choice or can it still be helpful in, in those circumstances? Well, I mean, I think, again, it's, it's helpful to segment elite athletes versus non-elite because if you're an elite athlete and you're, um, you know, you're on the U.S. women's soccer team or you, you're Usain Bolt, all that matters is your ability to produce energy by glycolysis so that they, you do anything to blunt that, it's going to have a big impact on your performance. But in those two sort of scenarios, even if you're, you know, you're playing pickup basketball casually or you're, um, you know, swimming a 50-meter race in, in a master's swim meet, you know, 0.5 of a percent less efficiency through glycolysis is likely not to be the major limiting factor to your performance. Um, and, you know, actually, interestingly, I've done a lot of work in with the military and this kind of gets a bit emotive because people are like, well, if the soldiers lost their ability to maximally sprint, what if they couldn't run away from an ambush or something like that? And uh, I actually had a number of conversations with some people, some veterans who had done years of service and they were like, we never sprint 100% because we're carrying um, ammunition, we're carrying our packs, we're also trying to navigate where is the best way out of this situation. So there's never, never actually an occasion where I am running at 100%. And so unless you need that 100%, then, then actually maybe the potential for the ketogenic diet to take off that top-end glycolytic, maybe it's, it's less important for all but the very most elite people whose sprint performance matters the most. So, I mean, I would agree with something that you said earlier, which is that the other benefits in, in most cases could be said to outweigh um, the possible biochemical downsides. The only thing as well, you know, to say in the, in, the, um, in the spirit of fairness is that not everyone finds the ketogenic diet easy to adhere to. So I think, you know, as a, as a community, we can't say, you know, thou shalt be on keto and this is the only way. It's like if, if it's giving you, if, if you're enjoying it, if it's sustainable with your lifestyle, you're finding good health benefits, um, you know, you're still able to go out and play your pickup basketball and all of that and you feel better and you're losing weight and all of this, then of course this is like obviously what you should be doing. But if you're the type of person and it's just a struggle every time you walk past a bakery, 
then, you know, probably don't go in the bakery, but but, <laughs> but still, right? You know, right. it works better for some people than others. Yeah, it's a very, really good perspective. Now, um, you also, I want to go back to what you said about the keto adaptation process. So we talk a lot about sort of the keto flu and becoming fat adapted. And usually that takes, you know, anywhere from one to two weeks, depending on your hydration and your electrolytes. But that's a very different scenario than athletic keto adaptation or fat adaptation for athletics, right? So can you kind of help yeah. differentiate between those two? I tell you what, there's an awful lot to unpick there and an awful lot that we don't really know. So for example, um, Dr. Volek talks about um, glycogen levels in athletes who are on a ketogenic diet. And he has, uh, and at the moment we only have three data points. So we have Dr. Finney's study, which was a few weeks long I think um, and they had the athletes on a ketogenic diet had much level lower levels of muscle glycogen and then he's Dr. Volek has a more recent study uh, with military cadets and that was a more intermediate uh, duration and those athletes had I think it was maybe like a 10% decrease in muscle glycogen and then his study uh, the faster study which is quite well known with athletes that have been on the ketogenic diet for a couple of years even those athletes had no difference in resting muscle glycogen and muscle glycogen is a really important determinant of athletic performance. So we actually don't know how long it takes the body to adapt to be able to um, keep muscle glycogen stores optimal when you're on the ketogenic diet. But Dr. Volek's long-term data from those athletes who are on the diet for a long time suggests that you can. Um, so using muscle glycogen as the indicator of you have adapted, basically. Well, okay, so this is one marker. Yeah. The flip side of that is um, the group that's uh, notoriously anti-keto over in um, Australia, they've shown that some of the um, change, enzymatic changes inside the muscle cells can occur in as little as four days. Mm -hmm. So that's why they argue that there's no point in adapting for longer than four days to the ketogenic diet because you've actually got, and the and that the changes even reverse that quickly. So there's big things like uh, muscle glycogen storage, smaller things like on a cellular level about levels of enzyme expression. There may even be... Um, remodeling of adipose tissue, um, switching from white fat to brown fat, for example, right. changes in the amount of lipids in the muscle. So keto adaptation um, is a hugely dynamic uh, process and there's so many different things that are changing. Um, yeah, I don't think, I don't think, I think it's very hard to say that we have a good handle on exactly what the timeline of that process is. It may be to fully keto adapt is, as Dr. Volek suggests, a couple of years even. Wow. Well, I mean, we can't say for sure. Yeah. It depends what change you're looking at. So, and that's important because the advice we give as clinicians to our patients when we put them on a ketogenic diet or carbohydrate-restricted diet for their health, for diabetes, for weight loss, but if they also are interested in their own athletic performance, you know, just how they do in the gym, how they do on their 5K runs or whatever the case may be, generally we have to advise them that their performance is going to go down for mm -hmm. some period of time before mm -hmm. it comes back up. But that some period of time is the hard thing to it's define. It's very individual as well. Yeah. And it depends how successfully they can uh, implement the diet um, and all kinds of things. So right. yeah, there's, a, there's an awful lot to unpick there. And I think it's hard to give a one size fits all recommendation as to how long we should expect that period mm -hmm. of time to be. I would say that I think it's kind of interesting to me how exogenous ketones might help with bridging that adaptation gap, whether it's in terms of the keto flu or whether it's in terms of athletic performance. So, you know, you want to fuel your workout, but not completely with a rapid energy source, but not completely derail your progress with the ketogenic diet. Yeah. So perfect transition. So let's transition to what we know about using exogenous ketones, ketones that we can just drink to boost our uh, ketone levels and how that affects athletic performance for the elite athlete, but also bringing it back to sort of the everyday person. 
Yeah, I mean, uh, it makes most sense to start with like fairly well-trained athletes because they're the group that we've studied to date. And I think there's an awful lot of work that still needs to be done looking at less trained people um, and also athletes who are on the ketogenic diet because a lot right. of the athlete studies that have been done to date use athletes who are on a mixed diet. So uh, the first thing that I always find really interesting is that um, athletes themselves, regardless of diet, are quite well poised to metabolize ketones because ketones get taken up into the muscle through the monocarboxylate transporter, as, as we all know. Um, but that transporter is also used for lactate. And so if you're athletically trained, you've already upregulated that through exposure to lactate. So athletes can get ketones into the muscles quite efficiently compared with someone who's sedentary. Um, so when we're thinking about how ketones might be useful for athletic performance, it's kind of interesting to think about why ketones even evolved for starvation. They evolved as a fuel and they evolved to alter our carbohydrate uh, burning and turn that down, stop us from breaking down our protein for into glucose uh, to complement lipid metabolism and preserve cognitive function. And all of those things could be useful for an athlete, right? Athletes right. can use BHB as a fuel. It can mean that you don't have to take on as much exogenous carbohydrate and like protect our carbohydrate stores. And then in terms of a kind of a recovery setting, that protein effect could kind of be interesting as well. So um, at Oxford, we, we were trying to unpick this state of being in like fed state, but also having ketones present as well, because before the discovery and, and availability of exogenous ketones, you either were in ketosis and you had low carbohydrate availability, or you were, uh, hang on, what is it? You were either in ketosis and had low carbohydrate availability, or you had carbohydrates, but no ketones, right? right. It, was, it was a one or the other. It was pretty binary. So, so now you're talking about a physiological state that has really never existed in, exactly. in the history of humankind, where you can have sort of, you could say high insulin, fed state, or at least not low insulin. So yeah. carbohydrate availability, insulin not being low, and ketones being available. It sort of never existed before. No, and you know, from an athletic perspective, this is really interesting because it's like all of a sudden you can get fuels coming in from different pathways that never would have been able to be simultaneously tapped um, at any one time. So it certainly made sense to us as we started studying this that um, the reasons why this might add up to be a good thing for athletes. But, you know, you never know, so you have to run the studies. Um, so firstly, we had to see whether athletes not on a ketogenic diet could even burn ketones during exercise. And so we ran some studies looking at levels of uh, ketones after identical ketone drinks taken at rest or during exercise. And we could see that exercise brought down the levels of ketones when you were even taking the same drink. So it's like, huh, ketones going down, that probably means they're being burnt. I mean, there are other possibilities there as well. Um, but we strongly suspected that this uh, decrease in levels of BHB represented ketone oxidation. Mm -hmm. And then we were looking at other, you know, okay, so ketones are burnt. What's happening to the metabolism of other fuels? So we did some muscle biopsy work and looked at um, muscle glycogen before and after exercise that's normally uh, at an intensity that's very glycolytic. So 75%, which is normally for most uh, non-fat adapted athletes, they're pretty, pretty much completely reliant on carbs for that. And we could see that um, when we gave the athletes ketones and carbs rather than just carbs, they were hardly touching their muscle glycogen stores at all, um, which was kind of bizarre and, and very useful when you start to think about wanting to push out and extend the ability to keep exercising because we know that when your glycogen stores run out, that's kind of when you have to stop or take on extra fuel. Um, another sign that carb metabolism was being modulated was blood levels of lactate 
lactic acid. So lactate is produced as a byproduct from glycolysis, carb, carb burning again. And we could see that steady state lactate levels were around about two millimoles low when you took ketones uh, prior to exercise prior uh, keto when you took ketones to, with ex oh, gosh. Lactate levels were around about two millimoles low when you took ketones and carbs with before exercise rather than just carbs alone. Right. So it's like kind of, uh, and lactate is very easy to measure with just a finger prick test mm -hmm. when, you're, when you're testing athletes as well. So it's quite an easy test that people could see that their metabolism was shifting. And then, yeah. so it can be used then to prolong the exercise by by prolonging the glycogen availability, mm -hmm. and maybe to increase the intensity or duration by not having as high of a lactate level. Mm, it actually, which shifts is, the lactate threshold. So yeah. yeah, it would be shifting your like training zones. Interesting. And then, can that also play into recovery as well? That mm -hmm. the, so it can it can have multiple different effects from that standpoint. Exactly, yeah. it's really interesting. And then the the final thing that was kind of neat that we saw was an increase in oxidation of intramuscular lipid. So um, athletes have quite a lot of intramuscular lipid. Um, it's like an adaptation to help athletes with endurance. It's like put the fat near the mitochondria where it, where it needs to be. Um, uh, but typically, again, as I said, when you get over a certain intensity, you don't burn that intramuscular lipid because you're relying on carbohydrates. And we saw that at this quite high intensity, ketones turn the muscle back on to using fat even more, which was, it was, it was very um, stark how different the metabolism was in the presence of ketones versus conventional carb fuel metabolism in these non-keto-adapted uh, athletes. And so uh, what we saw in those athletes, and, you know, this is, you know, heavily caveat this with, you know, it's a small study um, and, you know, high-level athletes, but we did see a pretty consistent improvement in performance that was on average uh, around about 400 meters over 30 minutes, which is about 2%. Um, and, you know, to put in perspective, 2% would be separating like first and fourth place at the Olympic marathon. So mm -hmm. for high level athletes, uh, an improvement like that is is meaningful. Right. Um, then if we try and extrapolate that back to less trained athletes, this is where I start to get into more like speculation. There's there's reasons to believe that it would work better and reasons to believe that it would work less well. So, for example, if you're less well trained, then your performance is probably intrinsically a bit more variable. Like the better you get at something, the more consistently you can hit certain performances. So there's just more room for error in your performance. And then also, as I was saying, the training of the muscle actually better equips it to um, to take up and metabolize ketones. So maybe, you know, maybe there's less benefit when you're when you're less well trained. But at the stage we don't know, we still need to run the research study. Would you say it's potentially more beneficial for someone who is a carb burner as opposed to somebody who is already on a ketogenic diet that has Yeah, that's a great question. And and we can definitely argue this either way. So yeah. um the and and I've worked with athletes uh, at my previous company at HVMN. You know, we had low carb athletes using this um, who had really great experiences, and others who didn't like it as much. And so the way I'd argue it both ways is: if you're low carb and ketogenic, you're even better tooled up to oxidize ketones. And so when you're presented with this big bolus of ketones, your body is really great at metabolizing it, and it's it fits right in with your like preferred metabolism. And so that's that's for the people who I feel like would respond. And then on the other hand, you could argue that actually when you take a ketone drink what one of the key things that happens is you, ketones uh, dampen lipolysis which is the process of fat release from our adipose tissue and so if you take a ketone drink and you dampen lipolysis and then you decrease your plasma free fatty acids well in a fat adapted athlete those people are really quite heavily reliant on those plasma free fatty acids right. so it's almost like turning off the tap on their main energy source um 
and actually making it more difficult for them to perform. Mm. So, I mean, I couldn't, uh, we haven't run the science study and I definitely had both uh, reports come back to me and I, so I couldn't tell you what the real truth is there yet, but... Yeah, so it's fascinating to put you in a position of would you recommend it to sort of the everyday athlete who's already in ketosis? Sounds like it might be hard to recommend that as a performance enhancer or you just have to try it and see if it works for you. I would would say... um, definitely don't discount it until you've tried it because I couldn't tell you what the predictive factor is as to whether it's working or not. You know, whether I think some people really like fasted workouts and other people just feel like really, really bad and they have to have something, whether it's um, MCT coffee or whether it's a slow release carb. So, you know, we definitely had we definitely had a, a lot of positive feedback from low carb athletes building this into like very long, for example, mountain bike races, and right. especially athletes like Zach Bitter. Um, the uh, I think he holds the world record for the hundred mile. Hundred miles. Yeah, one hundred miles. It's like yeah. you ran like, like six forty or something a mile. Oh, crazy. Six forty miles for a hundred miles. Yeah. But he strategically will include carbohydrates in as well, even though he trains mm-hmm. low carb. So you know, I think as you know your body better figuring out where you strategically need to include different fuels, you become better at it. So yeah. I, for anyone who's um, on a ketogenic diet and would like energy for their workouts and, you know, maybe they're training for some kind of race or event, I'd encourage you to try it because at the moment there's very little like risk, uh, cost benefit, you know, the cost benefit analysis is try it and see how it works for you and, and also wait for us to do the science to actually be able to give you a definitive recommendation. Right. Now, briefly, let's get into the difference between salts and esters. Mm -hmm. And for those who are not athletes, hang with us. We're going to get to some of the longevity and health stuff in a little bit. But just to finish up on the on the sports part of it, which is interesting to me, especially, you know, because I I do a lot of mountain biking and I don't compete, but it sure is fun to sort of leave your friends in the dust as Mm -hmm. you're going up that last hill. So every little bit, I guess, helps. But let's talk about the salts versus esters in terms of tolerability, efficacy, and sort of what you would recommend to people if they just wanted to see if they had a little boost in their athletic performance? Well, I mean, this point is actually relevant to people using ketones for every single use case, like all of those things, you know, BHB delivery, uh, tolerability, accessibility of the compounds, all of that would play into your, you choosing to use it, whether you're an athlete or whether you are someone looking to um, like uh, protect your brain health over the long term or maybe experimenting with some of the clinical conditions where ketones are thought to be useful. So this this is this is a topic and a question that's relevant to everyone. So I mean let's maybe start with ketone salts. They are the most widely available in consumer products right now. So it's the easiest to find ketone salts and they tend to be the most price economical. Uh, these molecules consist of typically the ketone beta-hydroxybutyrate and that's that's because acetoacetate and acetone are not very stable and it's difficult to formulate them into a into a product so you take your beta-hydroxybutyrate and you bind it bind it with an ionic bond to a mineral uh, that's typically something like sodium or calcium or potassium interestingly enough it's actually also possible to bind ketones to charged amino acids but amino acids have quite a big molecular weight so you end up having to take like mountains and mountains of powder to get a decent amount of uh, ketones if you do that so mostly these are minerals um, like we would think of like table salt kind of thing, Mm -hmm. but as ketones instead. Um, One consideration that people should look out for, and it's not always obvious, is that typically these salts are mixtures of two optical isoforms of beta-hydroxybutyrate. So when you do uh, chemical synthesis outside of the body, you end up with... um, well, I should have explained optical isomerism. Uh, optical isomerism is kind of refers to this property of molecules where it's almost like handedness. So if we think about left and our right hands, we have four fingers and a thumb and they uh, mirror images of one another, but they don't overlay on one another. 
And beta-hydroxybutyrate has this property and the enzymes in our body that make ketones and also that break ketones down are specific to one-handed form. As whereas, So if we give this other handed form that our body isn't really used to seeing, it won't certainly won't be making it, but it also is very slow to be breaking it down or, or using it for anything. And so people may hear those referenced as an L and a D form yeah. of the ketone bodies. It's, it's kind of confusing because people either call them R and S or yeah. D and L. And I, can't, I couldn't tell you exactly in which setting you should be using either one of them, but you use them in pairs. So it's R, S or D, L. Got it. But um, unless on the product it specifies that it's the D form, then it's likely it's some mixture of the two. Um, and this uh, S or L form is like the non-natural form. And so we don't really know how that behaves in, inside the body. We, we don't think it's useful as an energy form. But a lot of my work now at the Buck actually focuses on understanding the signaling uh, implications of S-beta-hydroxybutyrate, which are, which are fascinating. And uh, looking forward to sort of finding out more about that. Um, so especially for athletic performance, but also in conditions, for example, Alzheimer's disease, where energy provision is like one of the really key things that the ketones are doing in this kind of situation. You'd always want to be prioritizing D or R beta-hydroxybutyrate over the S or L form of beta-hydroxybutyrate. So that's just something to be aware of with mm -hmm. the salts. Um, and then what about the esters? How do they differ? So the esters, again, um, I think it helps to take a step back and we try and we, we have this bucket to ketone esters and we assume that all of the things in it are kind of similar. But actually, um, a ketone ester is, is quite a broad term and it refers to a molecule where you have BHB or acetoacetate joined by a special type of bond called an ester bond to a ketone precursor. Uh, those precursors can vary. So it can either be 1,3-butane diol or glycerol or a medium chain fatty acid. And also you can have monoesters. So one ester bond, diesters, two ester bonds, triesters, three ester bonds. So actually um, there are tens, maybe even hundreds of different possible ketone esters. And the chemical structures of those molecules, whether they deliver BHB versus acetoacetate, for example, those are all going to impact on what they're useful for. Um, there's going to be big difference in like physical properties of those molecules, like how they taste, which is a really important one, how easy right. they are. Mm -hmm. Yeah, we can get to that later. Um, yeah. How easy they are to make and therefore how cheap or expensive they'll be. Um, so there's really like a lot of differences within that um class so i i i think i want to highlight to, to everyone that if you hear something being like ketone esters do this you actually have to look and see which ketone ester has been being used and i think a really neat example actually is um there's the acetoacetate diester that Dr. D'Agostino has been working on, and they've actually seen that giving acetoacetate in certain use cases like the CNS oxygen toxicity and in some of their cancer models, actually it's better to give acetoacetate than beta-hydroxybutyrate. Right, which is so interesting because mm -hmm. we talk so much about beta-hydroxybutyrate, but there are some circumstances where acetoacetate may be better for neurological function. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. It's very interesting. And we're already only just starting to scratch the surface of understanding the, the differences because they're so closely related that one wouldn't necessarily just expect that there'd be a difference. Right. But, um, you yeah. know, when you start to look at the biochemistry, so for example, beta-hydroxybutyrate may just be better for athletic performance because if you give BHB, then it's going to be converted into acetoacetate. And that conversion generates uh, one molecule or one part of NADH, which is used for energy production. So you get this oh, extra energy production step in the conversion of BHB to acetoacetate that you wouldn't get if you just gave acetoacetate, for example. 
I knew all that chemistry I learned would come in handy someday. Uh, there you go. There <laughs> right? you go. That's um, great. Yeah. So, I mean, so ketone esters, um, they're a very diverse class of molecules. But generally speaking, uh, well, firstly, they avoid the mineral load that you get with salts. And that often means that they're more tolerable because because of that mineral load, there seems to be like a bit of a threshold to how many salts you can consume without GI upset. Right. And also just sort of around health concerns around big boluses and mineral consumption, you know, mm. the effects on your kidneys and your heart and all of that as well. Okay. Um, then you have the esters. There's none of this mineral load. Um, so they're kind of a little bit more... Uh, potent in terms of BHB delivery, or at least the BHB monoester is very potent in that you could take maybe like a 30 or a 40 gram dose and be at like six or seven or eight millimoles of ketones within 30 minutes. So, so much higher level and a much lower volume of liquid that that's you have to it. consume. Yeah, yeah, I mean, it doesn't taste great and consuming 30 grams of it, sort of like a little bit of a, uh, it would a be a great tequila shot or yeah, something. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so um, yeah, that's the key difference is that, okay. you know, with the esters, Depending on the compound, again, the BHB monoester is quite well tolerated and we haven't seen high incidences of GI effects. Um, whereas the acetoacetate ester in its current form was quite poorly tolerated by athletes. So, you know, people are like, oh, esters make you sick. Well, it's like, no, that one ester made people sick. You know, Got it's it. going to be different for different compounds. Yeah. And, you know, it's now something that we're exploring in the buck. Like, how can we change up how ketone esters like work and stick them together to get different uh, like clinical and endpoints. Yeah, so it's a great transition. So you you are sort of embarking on a new part of your career at the Buck Institute. And I wanted to read, um, so it's the Buck Institute for Research in Aging and Age-Related Diseases, and their mission statement is to extend the healthy years of life. That sounds like a great mission statement. Extend I tell you what, the healthy years of life. It's an awesome place to work. You know, yeah. we have um, the ketone biology lab, but we have people researching brain health and Alzheimer's, ovarian health. We have people who are specialists in C. elegans, which is this little worm, and they give the worms all kinds of different things and see how long they live. Um, what else? I mean, sleep experts, exercise yeah. experts. And it's just so uh, exciting and refreshing to be in a place where there's just so much um, innovation and creative thinking around science. And the Institute is set up in a very collaborative way. So everyone comes together very often and there's a lot of sharing of knowledge and expertise between labs. So I think it's um, you know a great way to accelerate our knowledge and discoveries here. So for example, we're collaborating with the bioinformatics and AI core to look at um, to do a very broad look at how different biomarkers are changed during ketogenic diets and compare that to exogenous ketones. And they have this fantastic, um, you know, uh, way of uh, looking at all of the different markers and showing us like what are the most important differences. Mm -hmm. And then we also have a fantastic proteomics and mass spectrometry core. And we're going to be looking at how beta-hydroxybutyrate itself is added to proteins as a post-translational modification. And again, if that's different between the diet and exogenous ketones as well. So what I bringing into the team a little bit is this knowledge about exogenous ketones. And so we're using it as a tool in and alongside the ketogenic diet. Now we'll always be comparing diet to esters or diet to, to exogenous ketones of any kind. And we also are interested in running alongside that um, arms where we give just targeted S or uh, L beta-hydroxybutyrate by itself so that we can isolate any energy effects of the ketones from any potential signaling effects of the ketones as well. So the experimental designs that are being set up will hopefully allow us to start to tease apart things that are down to carbohydrate restriction, things that are down to BHB potentially as an energy, and then things that are down to BHB as a signal as well. And where we can really tap into all of our colleagues and uh, PIs over at the Buck to be able to do that. So it's, it's a fantastic environment. 
Yeah, I, I, and I can tell your enthusiasm for it. Just the way you speak about it and you sort of light up when you talk about it. That's really interesting. It shows that you love what you do and you can really see the impact it's going to have. Now, when, when we talk to people about starting a ketogenic diet for their health, whether it's reversing type 2 diabetes, whether it's for weight loss, whether it's for treating insulin resistance or metabolic syndrome, lowering their blood pressure, all these different effects, generally it's, it's the effect of lowering insulin and lowering glucose that is the most important. That's only going to happen with the nutritional carbohydrate restriction. Adding the ketones probably aren't going to help with that. But can the ketones have an additive effect or a different effect? Sounds like that's what you're starting to research. Do we have any data one way or the other now, or is this something that we're going to have to wait and hold on for future studies? Hmm. Well, we know that giving the worms, the C. elegans worms, beta-hydroxybutyrate, by itself can extend their lifespan. So I suspect that there are isolated effects of the BHB molecule and maybe the acetoacetate molecule as well on uh, gene expression pathways that are associated with aging and aging well and maybe having a better health span and lifespan. So I wouldn't completely rule out that um, that ketogenic uh, ketone esters or ketone supplements would completely not not have the same effect as being on the ketogenic diet. In can fact, you put a seal again on the ketogenic diet? <laughs> I don't know that you can. You can definitely put mice on a ketogenic diet, but yeah. I don't know about the worms. But um, I'd actually recommend, it's kind of a little bit deep, but it's a nice place to start. Um, Dr. Richard Veach at the NIH has written a really interesting review talking about uh, caloric restriction and ketone esters and how all of the different pathways of longevity that, they're, um, that they interplay on. Because it's actually... A more complicated than just insulin. Mm -hmm. um, there's so many different pathways that feed into longevity. And, you know, I think that actually some of these are going to be hit by just consuming ketones by themselves. Obviously not all of it. And if you want, you know, we say when we have visitors up at the buck and they're like, what do I need to do to live longer? And we're like, well, sleep enough, do some exercise and look at your diet. And if you're not going to go full ketogenic diet, then do periods of fasting or time restricted eating. You know, there's, you've always got to meet people where they're at. And I, you know, I, think that we need to be reinstalling periods of ketosis back into our kind of everyday life because you know it's something that we've evolved with as a species periods of plenty and, and periods of less um so whether that's just getting up to 16 hours of fasting 16 8 kind of eating window or whether it's doing 136 hour fast a week or whether it's going on a ketogenic diet all of these are going to be small changes that people can make that's going to promote health span and lifespan and uh, you know, I think it's always important to meet people where they're at, you know, no one else, no, no, it'll be hard for me to sit down and tell people you need to do what I'm doing and train like 18 hours a week, like part of my Ironman training. Most people are never going to be able to or want to do that. Um, so it's just like anything that you're doing now, maybe just add 5% more and that's always going to be a positive step in the right direction. And I, another study that I think typify, uh, exemplifies this really nicely is um, John Little at the University of British Columbia looked at the difference that a low-carbohydrate breakfast could make to total glucose exposure during the day. And he found that even just taking out the carbohydrates at breakfast had a, a, an impact on overall exposure during the day that could likely be clinically meaningful. So yeah. it's even if you change out like one of your meals a day and make it very, very low carbohydrate, this is going to start to help your metabolic health and then also help how you age as well. So I think it can be kind of extreme for people, some people to contemplate making that big shift to the ketogenic diet. But it's like, take the first step, start somewhere, start somewhere, whether it's with a little bit of fasting or whether it's with one low carbohydrate meal a day, you know, it's, you know, I know that um, 
once you start really committing to that lifestyle, you actually have to really commit to to end up with that keto adaptation. But there are sort of like uh, intermediate steps that you can do just to kind of get your body ready for it and understand the process a little bit yeah. better. And I think that's a good perspective too about about all the other factors for health and longevity. So if you're sleeping three hours a night and you're eating your Doritos and your donuts all day long, taking a ketone ester is probably not where you want to start. You no. want to start <laughs> looking at your lifestyle first. No, I mean, like none of these things are band-aids for, for actually making proper lifestyle changes that are going to support... Um, support health into aging and you know yeah. we haven't even touched on being part of community and all of those other things as well which we're understanding now are increasingly important for being healthy as we age yeah i think that's really interesting because they're they're observational studies so it doesn't sort of prove that the community is what does it but there's you can certainly hypothesize that you know having more meaning being beholden to others um you know, having that that love in the relationship makes you want to take better care of yourself. I mean, you can certainly see sort of like the downstream effects. So just being part of a community can have its impacts. Yeah, and I mean, one could, um, you know, notice that actually when people start doing the ketogenic diet, often they'll plug into some kind of online community, maybe like Diet Doctor or there are loads of Facebook groups where yep. people are um, sharing success stories and, you know, like encouraging one another and sharing recipe ideas. And actually for some of these people feeling like they're making progress and not alone, that's really, really powerful and helps them with their sort of, um, to reach their goals. Yeah. Yeah. That makes a lot of sense. So I, I want to also talk a little bit more about when you're talking about health and longevity, another topic that comes up frequently is metformin, mm-hmm. the drug metformin. Is that something you have any, um, involvement in at, at Buck? Are you looking at metformin at all? We, we are not. Um, the most sort of related thing to that that we're looking at, uh, Dr. Eric Verdon's lab is looking a lot at NAD metabolism and mm-hmm. NAD supplementation and the roots of NAD synthesis and breakdown. So that's sort of the, the le- least ketone thing that I'm kind of tangentially related to right now. But I mean, all of the uh, evidence coming out right now around metformin is very interesting and certainly something that I'm following, but not something we're actively researching yeah. in, in our group. So people are studying metformin for maybe uh, cancer prevention and for longevity, but now we're learning that there's also maybe some mitochondrial dysfunction and some exercise inhibition from metformin. So it's not all rosy. Well, I mean, I would say that with pretty much any intervention, there's a a rosy side and a less rosy side, right? Right. I mean, even with, um, you know, ketone esters as an example, you could use it um, to help you with your performance and recovery, but are you blunting the other adaptations that you need? Are you? We don't know at this stage. There's an argument that you would be blunting the adaptations that you need to to, like get fitter and stronger and Mm -hmm. and better. And that argument was actually made with antioxidants. Um, So... I, the way that I like to frame up these whole things is like you're either at a point in your life where you're prioritizing performance uh, and in that that case, you're often trading off the factors that would help you with longevity. I think it's like you kind of have to prioritize one or the other. Um, and, you know, when I was a, an elite athlete, it was performance. Right. But for many people, um, and especially as you age, you need to then be, you know, you aren't going to be pounding like goo shots and all of that. You, you can be taking your metformin and then, doesn't matter so much how you lift much you lift in the gym, but maybe the metformin and the the health span that you'll get from taking that, then it's more worthwhile. So yeah, yeah it, it seems to me that when you look at the metabolic pathways like mTOR, for example, athletes are always wanting to boost that for muscle growth. And then when we think about longevity, we're like, oh no, I want to turn it down. So you, 
you're almost like you got to pick pick one of the two things that you're going after there. And yeah, so let's talk about mTOR for a little bit because it's, it's such a hot topic. It seems that a lot of people are talking about it, and you want it for growth, mm-hmm. but gr- too much growth can mean cancer growth or mm-hmm. you know uh, promoting that if it's already begun. But even if we're not bodybuilders or elite athletes, we still want to maintain lean muscle mass and building muscle mass so we're not at risk for sarcopenia and falls as we age. So we still don't want to completely turn off mTOR. So how do you balance how you see mTOR in terms of having adequate protein intake for a lean muscle mass or in the setting of a, a low-carb ketogenic diet? Um, how do you balance that? Oh, it's a big meaty science <laughs> question there. Um, one thing that I always... I uh, think is like not that well understood or not that well articulated in any case is that there are t- tissue specific uh, effects of say the ketogenic diet on mTOR uh, activity and mTOR expression. So for example, um, if you look at John Newman's uh, study on m- mice on the ketogenic diet and the, the study that came out of UC Davis at the same time, mice on the ketogenic diet, they were actually seeing different levels of gene expression related to mTOR in the liver, plays in the muscle, plays you know in other tissues and the brain, for example. And so I think we're really only just starting to unpick the tissue-specific effects of um, ketogenic dieting or protein ingestion. You know, just because we say, oh, protein does this to mTOR, we don't actually know whether this is the same in all of all of the tissues, right? So right. Um, I think it's a more complicated story than just a simple headline. Um, personally, I, I eat protein and I wouldn't be uh, restricting my protein intake to try and out of fear that it would lead to cancer or anything like that. Right. right. And, and good perspective that the headlines don't uh, reflect the, the quality or the level of the science frequently. No, yeah. I mean, unfortunately, um, you, everything's got to be distilled down into a headline these days. Um, not very many people are going to put in the effort to read the academic papers. And then, you know, even I, you know, I read a lot of academic papers and even then it can be hard to distill out the nuances of what's going on. It's easy to miss things that could be important confounders. And so there's really probably very few people that actually get what an academic paper actually means when it comes out. So nowadays we we take our uh, interpretations from popular media or from what we read and on social media, other people's takes as well. And it, it sometimes misses it sometimes misses some important nuances. But I do think that there's there's a desire to oversimplify everything. So like protein restriction does this to mTOR, which does this to lifespan or, uh, you know, ketone esters do this to performance and you know as we've already discussed there's a lot of nuance in terms of the ester in terms of the performance in terms of the athlete right. level so you just can't capture all of the necessary nuance in a, in a uh, headline that's clickbait right so quickly here you you mentioned um iron man triathlon training yes so you are working with longevity research and training for an iron man mm-hmm. and I, I will live until i'm 120 but I would argue that they're not related. So, because with you know with Ironman triathletes, they have a higher incidence of atrial fibrillation. Studies show that you know high level and uh, endurance athletes will have higher coronary calcification. So, more exercise is not necessarily better for health. I mean, do you have like a little? I've never concern, heard though? those statistics before. Oh, so sorry I, if I just ruined it for no, you. No, you just ru- you just ruined my no. So um. I've been doing triathlon now since I finished rowing. I mean, I guess, you know, it's probably not that different in terms of the training volume that I was doing uh, while I was on the rowing, British international rowing team is sort of like 20 hour weeks. And now I'm maybe more like 16 to 18. 
Um, I would say from personal experience, I definitely feel like that's like some level of addiction and that it's not something that I think will be sustainable forever. Um, I'm enjoying the change of sport. And so there's a certain amount of that in there as well. Um, but yeah, I mean, I don't think, and I think, you know, even on uh, joint joints and bone health and all of that, I don't think that it's necessarily going to be the ideal thing for me to do forever. Um, you know, I have some like short-term goals that I want to hit. And then after that, I think I probably would like readdress my, um, I don't know that I'll be an Ironman triathlete forever, forever, or doing it at the level which I'm currently trying to push for forever and ever. No, and I totally agree that there's probably like a bell curve in terms of um, health benefits to especially endurance exercise because it's yeah. hard on your body. It is. And for women, especially, you know, when I was on the rowing team, I ended up with uh, REDS. So, or well, it used to be called female athlete triad, but now it's called REDS, which is relative energy deficiency. You know, I was very, very lean and doing all of this volume and it really f affected my hormones and, um, you know, people were concerned about bone health as well and, and mental health as well. You're just exhausted. And so, yeah, I mean, more exercise is certainly not always better. Uh, you have to be able to support it with sleep and nutrition and recovery, which is hard when you've got a full-time job. You know, I think the people who coach triathletes the best are the people who are like, you. there's no point in getting up at 3 a.m. just so that you can hit the hours of training that you want to hit to try and do your Ironman. Like that's not productive for health. And so it comes back to kind of why are you competing in the sport? Is it is it your life? Are you, you going to be a professional? For most people, the answer is no. And even for me now, you know, I want to compete at a high level, but I don't think I want to be a professional triathlete. That's a small amount of people. And those people do it for most people do it for a relatively short amount of time. So, you know, the average person who's competing in Ironman, you know, it shouldn't be coming at the expense of your health. Right. Um, or your family and social life and everything like that. So you have to find a balance to, to make it work. So, I mean, it's certainly not a sport for everyone. And I kind of try and resist a little bit the idea of doing it just because it's this kind of physically quite impressive feat and it's like kind of long and hard to complete. But um, it's been fun to, to turn my endurance background into this new sport and I've enjoyed traveling and the community there is really great as well. And so long as you practice it in a, in a healthy way um, and make sure it complements your lifestyle, then I think it's certainly better than being a couch potato. Yeah, that's for sure. Yeah, well, I've, I've had to make the transition from a triathlete now to trying to be more efficient and trying to hit more of you know, what I think is important for longevity, whether it's resistance training or short mm -hmm. interval training and, and no longer the big long interval trainings. But I know sometimes there's an itch you just have to scratch and I still love my long bike rides and it, it doesn't necessarily have to do with longevity. It has to do with more sort of almost psychological therapy and, and the enjoyment of it. And, and I know yeah. it's not for everybody, but it seems like you've got a big dose of that as well. <laughs> yeah, I'm I'm working on like uh, toning that down in my life a little bit. But yeah. I, I love, you know, being out there on my bike. And recently I took part in a three-day ride from San Francisco to Santa Barbara oh, along, along Highway 1. And it's just beautiful being out on the coast road. And, you know, there's nothing quite like the feeling of getting back after a really long, hard session and just lying on the couch and everything kind of like throbbing. But you're like, I'm so alive right now. You know, it's... Did you take any ketones while you were doing so, it? So not on that ride, but actually yeah. when I'm doing the Ironman training, when I, when when my performance really, really matters, yeah. um, on those key like race prep sessions, then yeah, I use it and it makes a very big difference. Great. 
Great. Well, this has been a wonderful window into sort of who you are and all the amazing work you're doing. Thank and you. I, I can't wait to see more of your work coming from the Buck Institute. Thanks. It's been a pleasure to chat. Yeah. If people want to learn more about you and read about you, where can you direct them to go? Uh, probably best to find me on Twitter. I'm at Brianna Stubbs on Twitter. Uh, and you'll know it's me because the cover picture is me uh, doing some rowing. Um, I don't know that I'm actually up on the Buck website right now, but you can find out more about the research that's going on in the Newman Lab, which I'm a part of, um, on the Buck website. Uh, and that, that's probably the best two places to look. Great. Well, fantastic. Well, thank you for taking the time today. Thanks, Brett.